Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, powered by Greenlight Guru. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I catch up with Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is the Director of Regulatory Affairs for Proxima CRO. You can check out more about Proxima CRO by visiting their website, ProximaCRO.com. Very easy. But on this episode, Isabella talks uh, some in-depth uh, about breakthrough device designation, as well as the safer technology program. Both are programs from the FDA. Talks a little bit about the the differences then, and the similarities between the two and, and the potential benefits of pursuing uh, these as options. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Now with video and we're trying a new tool out, so bear with us. Hopefully, we get through this episode with uh, little or no technical glitches. But joining me today is Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is the, the Director of Regulatory Affairs for Proxima CRO. So, Isabella, welcome back. Hello. I'm a familiar voice, but probably not face, <laughs> although I've been on a couple of your summits, so I guess yeah. I'm sort of familiar. Well, uh, I want to remind people, you know, if you're listening to us, wherever you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, that's fine. But if you want to get the the whole video element to it, check it out. We're on YouTube. Uh, we'll be posting links on LinkedIn and, and the usual channel. So do check that out. But Isabella, you, um, you know, t- I, guess, I guess in your role at Proxmine and as a director of regulatory affairs, you deal a lot with different types of submissions. There's a couple programs that uh, I don't know if... I don't know, maybe they're not popular, but I think they're interesting. Um, one is the Breakthrough Device Designation Program, and the other is the STEP Program. And for listeners of the Global Medical Device Podcast, we, we've talked a little bit about those things before, but regardless, can you maybe give folks a little bit of an overview of what the BDD is and what the STEP sure. uh, program is as well? Sure. So um, I will say BDD is pretty popular. STEP, not so much because it's so new. Um, but BDDs, um, I call them BDDs, sorry, Breakthrough Device Designation, my acronyms, I'm throwing them out there already. Um, so Breakthrough Device Designations are designations for medical devices that treat or diagnose life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating conditions. Um, and they essentially have an improvement over the current standard of care in some form or fashion. So they may be a completely new technology. Um, so there are there is no real comparison um, device or drug to treat the, or diagnose this condition. Or they could be, you know, a modification of an existing technology. Um, and ultimately, they show uh, or have the potential to show that they're more effective than current technologies out there. And, um, you know, there is a component of breakthrough device designation that does include, you know, that they're more safe, um, which is basically, I'm going to shift to safer technologies program in a second, but is basically the crux of the safer technologies program. Um, You know, and so with breakthrough device designation, companies apply um, if they treat a life-threatening or diagnose a life-threatening or or irreversibly debilitating condition. 
And then they usually get feedback within 60 days from FDA, and they have the ability to engage in different types of interactions with the FDA than um, normal products do, so um, non-breakthrough device products. Um, and and this can just facilitate um, more collaboration and more interactive discussion with FDA, or it's supposed to at least, um, and you know priority review for the final pre-market submission, um, things of that nature. Also, companies, you know, it's great for marketing and 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 rate fundraising, um, especially to say, you know, I have a breakthrough device and it's been designated as such by FDA. Um, on the other hand, STEP um, is a newer program. I mean, there was a draft guidance out, I think, a couple of years back, but the final guidance was released, um, and it's for products that are not life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating. Um, or and we're not products, but that treat those types of diseases. Um, and but it still offers some sort of safety benefit to uh, the the current technologies that are out there. And so it's really more focused on safety and kind of eliminating the need to have a life threatening or irreversibly debilitating condition that you're diagnosing or treating. Okay, that's a great overview. And one of the things that I th think I've, well, I know I've heard that I think it's confusing for some folks is they think, oh, I got breakthrough device designation, that they almost describe it as if that is a specific type of uh, FDA submission. It's like, no, 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 that's not exactly the case. I mean, you're still going to have to go, depending on your classification, you're still going to have to go through, uh, you know, either 510K or PMA or what have you. This is just kind of to your point. I think you said this. This just gives you a little bit of a priority when you're in the queue. Gives oh, you a leg company. up. Yeah, it gives you a leg up. Um, so, what are some scenarios where a company may be uh, choosing one or or the other, or can you choose both? I mean, I guess talk about some some examples that yeah. you know. I, I know you can't share always uh, intimate details, but if you have some some generalities that you can share, that would be helpful. I think. Yeah. So I have seen since the step um, final guidance came out that in some of these breakthrough device interactions that I've had with FDA, um, they'll either be on the fence about a product being breakthrough device or they think it's not and they'll start suggesting step. Sometimes they suggest it and it makes sense and other times I'm like, it doesn't make sense. This is a life-threatening condition. Um, but, you know, the, the situations that you would look at are really primarily focused on the indication, right? So is this a life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating condition or is it more acute in it of an issue, right? And so if it's an acute issue, you're more likely to fall into step. If it's long-term life-threatening, more likely breakthrough device. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about this, um, when you have more of like a general indication statement, um, like it's more of like an intended use and not really indication specific, that's probably more along the lines of step than uh, it is breakthrough device. Okay. Because All FDA right. really hones in on the indication statement for a lot of breakthrough mm -hmm. devices. And usually one of the last steps when you're about to get designated is that there's some negotiation about the language, the patient population, the indication in that breakthrough device designation. And so they're really specific about the indication. Whereas you know, I've seen, you know, general use devices and there have been some general use devices that have gotten breakthrough device designation that maybe now that they had the STEP program, they probably would have been more appropriate for STEP. Um, but typically they, they, I've seen them now referring them more to the STEP program than the breakthrough device program 
you can go for both. Um, you can go for breakthrough device first, say, and then the FDA says, nah, I don't think you're really a breakthrough device. Yeah. Maybe you should do STEP and then you can apply to STEP. I mean, it's not like you get no told no for breakthrough device and then you're that's it. You know, you don't have yeah. the option to do stuff. Or even if you get told no the first time for breakthrough device, you can always reapply if it's something like, oh, we really need to see more evidence. And the more evidence part is kind of a sticking point for specific types of products because, you know, it can be a little bit confusing because FDA says, hey, we, we just need a reasonable expectation, but that terminology is very vague. And so what do they mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you hit on a couple of things. I mean, the the priority access, I think, is a um, a benefit. Um, it sounds like, you know, to me, oh, I've got breakthrough device designation. I mean, that that sounds like, wow, that's cool, right? Yeah. Step doesn't sound as cool, but um, but again, I think it's still a, a a great thing to pursue if applicable because of that priority status. Um, how does one, I mean, can I just look at it and say, oh, well, I, I have this cool device. Here are the criteria. Oh, I'm breakthrough. Uh, or do I have to like go through FDA? Or how, how does that all work? Yeah. So um, one thing on your point about the kind of terminology there, like step doesn't, is not really like glowy marketing words, but I have had companies that I've talked to that I'm like, I really don't think you're a breakthrough device, um, but their their primary marketing focus, even in sales focus, is about being safer than the current technology out there. So having the step designation can be beneficial for them because that's really their selling point, right? And so you're basically saying, hey, I've been designated a safer technology. Well, so even though the word isn't as fun, um, it's still, you know, can be good marketing for certain companies. And can I say that? Can can I say, oh, our product is safer than product XYZ? Mm, not officially. You can say that you have this stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can if ultimately just, just in your marketing that, right? submission, you should prove that, right? With the, the evidence and you do a comparison yeah. and that's what the data shows. But, um, you know, you can say that, you know, our when you're marketing post- you know, submission, and you've proven that you can say that you were designated that, and you have yeah, designation. And, and you and, might, you might be a little generic, right? You might say, "Oh, well, you know, FDA designated us as a safer technology from what's existing." I mean, you don't have to necessarily name somebody, but you can at least make that claim. Yeah, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then another interesting thing about STEP is that for breakthrough device designation, you have to do it prior to your pre-market submission. With STEP, you can do it at the same time or even after your pre-market submission or prior. Um, I think they prefer prior, uh, well, I say that. The intention is to have some of it get done prior because they want you to engage and you know have the more collaborative yeah. discussion. I, I'm hesitant about whether they really want that or not because I think a lot of times with FDA, some of the policy folks and the review teams are not in exact alignment. And mm. this is really arduous for the review teams. Like things like sprint discussions, they're not used to engaging in those types of things. And so, you know, you're making them respond in a 15 day or a week time frame that they're usually have 60 days to right. respond to you. And sometimes that can make the the sprint discussion is challenging with with certain divisions who are not familiar with that process. And so that's an yeah. important thing to know. Yeah. So um, again, though, I mean, I can't as a company say I'm this or I'm that. I, I still need that that um, authorization, I guess, or, or uh, confirmation from FDA that says, yes, we agree you are uh, breakthrough right. or yes, we agree you are a step at, at 
some point in that journey, right? Yeah. So you usually file that through a QSUB or you don't usually, you always file that through a okay. Um, And it's not, um, so a long time ago, breakthrough device designations, they would allow you to file them as part of a pre-sub. And so you'd be able to get other feedback and also get the breakthrough de designation kind of in one fell swoop. Now they don't allow that anymore. It's a separate submission for both breakthrough device and step, and you only get feedback on whether you're breakthrough device or step. Um, what I will say is that if you you do file it with additional questions and you get designated, then they'll kind of just auto put that in their queue rather than you having to file a new submission, but you're still on that 60 day waiting clock. They won't answer those questions in the same moment. And so breakthrough device designation and step need to be their own usually distinct queue subs. And it's a 60 day period between submission and final designation or denial. Um, at day 30, you get some additional requests for information. Um, I would say that happens 100% of the time. I've never had it happen where it doesn't. I mean, there are probably situations if you've engaged with them a bunch beforehand through precepts before filing breakthrough device designation, it may happen within the 30 days. But usually they ask for additional requests for information. And it can be something as simple as, hey, like, what do you mean by this in your indication statement? We would suggest you change it to this. Or it can be, hey, we don't understand your evidence. Um, and so at that 30 day mark, you can kind of get a feel for how it's going to fall. Um, okay. And usually what I do um, when I get that feedback, I, you know, I obviously discuss it with the companies. Right. But I also right. try to discuss it with FDA to make sure that we understand what they're asking us for and that we're responding appropriately to what they're asking so that our response to that additional request for information really touches upon the points that they want to see um, and that we're framing it in the right way. Mm. Um, sometimes, you know, if they're asking for things like more evidence, like they want clinical trial data, um, sure. you, you can't. Might be too early, right? Right, yeah. and, and then you would have to go back and, and refile. But um, you know, a, a lot of times it's just how you respond to them, and, and having that discussion um, in many many cases can help determine whether or not you end up ultimately getting it because you need them to understand your perspective and you to understand theirs. And yeah. um, that's not a requirement and they don't have to meet with you um, and you don't have to meet with them after you get that additional request for information, but it usually helps a whole lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, any anytime that you have, at least in my experience, that you have an opportunity to to um, engage and interact with your FDA reviewer or review team, especially if they're asking for something, rather than you go off think, oh, I know what that means. I'm going to go do this, and you go do it, and you come back and like, oh, nope, it's not really what they meant. If you have that opportunity to get clarification and have a live conversation, I always find that beneficial and. You know, I'm generally speaking a huge fan of pre-subs or Q-submissions, but can I tell you my wish list on that what topic? Is, yeah. Um, when you do a pre-sub, you have to indicate, oh, this is for a 510K or, oh, this is uh, or for a breakthrough device or or a step or or PMA or what have you or an ID. Why can't we just ch check all the, the possible boxes and have that part of the conversation? I just don't understand that. But like, oh, I'm a pre-sub. I think I, I want to learn more about this. Here's my case for BDD. Here's my case for step. I believe I'm five. Why can't I just do that all in one precept? But that's a rhetorical question, I yeah. suppose. Neither you well, nor I, I can answer that. 
they will um, give you some indication in pre-subs as to what they would like to see if you engage with them beforehand. Like they won't tell you like, yes, you're a breakthrough device designation um, because they haven't seen your full argument, right, in that pre-sub. But if you have some evidence and you say, hey, we're thinking about filing a breakthrough device designation, do you think that this evidence that we have would be sufficient to support that? They'll give you some answer, usually not like a very distinct answer and they won't tell you like, hey, we really want to yeah, and it's not binding, right? Yeah. And so, and you know, for the ones, even when you file a breakthrough device designation and you have that subsequent conversation with them, and if it's about evidence and you ask them like, okay, you want to see more evidence, like what are you really looking for? Are you say clinical evidence? You want to see 10 patients, 20 patients? How how many? What what do we need to give you? And it's kind of an arbitrary number that they yeah. come up with. It's just like, what do they feel is good in their gut? Right. They don't have a, a full rationale for it. And so that can be challenging with some of these submissions um, on the front end because you're like, okay, like, is this evidence enough or is it not? And I think a lot of it has to do with how you frame the argument. Sure. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to companies um, who are much further along than companies that I've worked with that have been designated. And it has a lot to do with how they explain their device and how they put together their argument. Because I think more than a lot of other documents, these are really like uh, thesis statements, right? And you're developing an argument around this um, rather than just giving them a bunch of information, which is, I mean, you, you develop an argument around all the submissions to a degree, but this is, it's really a, an argument that you're putting forth and you're trying to say, hey, we meet this thesis statement that we're a breakthrough device or a step device. Sure, sure. Folks, I want to uh, take a, a quick break. I want to remind you all that I am talking with Isabella Schmidt with She's the Director of Regulatory Affairs with Proxima CRO. Um, we are talking about breakthrough device designation and the uh, Safer Technology Program from FDA. And we'll get back to that here in a moment. But Isabella, while we're taking a short break, let folks know a little bit more about Proxima CRO and, and the types of uh, products and services that you help with. Sure. I'm used to giving this pitch now. I do it all the time. Um, so Proxima is a full contract, full contract, I keep saying that, full service contract research organization. Um, and basically we do regulatory quality and clinical consulting. Um, so that means we can help you with early regulatory strategy. We can engage with FDA, pull together your submissions, set up quality systems for you, manage quality systems for you, do audits. Um, and then we can, on the clinical side, do clinical development. So generate protocols, statistics, statistics, what are your endpoints need to be, and then we do full clinical trial execution as well. And so that involves, you know, study startups, selecting sites, monitoring the data, setting up the electronic data capture systems, and then closing out those sites and writing the final report. So really from start to finish, everything except really like bench and animal testing we can do. Awesome. Awesome work. And folks, uh, you can learn a lot more about all the services from Proxima Clinical Research by visiting their website, ProximaCRO.com. And that's P-R-O-X-I-M-A-C-R-O.com. And speaking of the topic today, uh, I, I don't, you probably already knew this, uh, Isabella, you probably were involved in it, but there's a really great um, uh, content article uh, on breakthrough device designation that that is... Uh, uh, on the Proxima website. So we'll include that link in the show notes that accompany. And while we're taking this break, I want to remind you all about Greenlight Guru and the only medical device success platform on the market today. It's 
designed specifically and only for medical device companies by actual medical device professionals within the platform. There are workflows to help you better manage your design and development activities, document and record management, as well as post-market surveillance, which is a big deal, obviously. uh, It always has been, but it's an especially big deal these days with the emergence of EUMDR, putting so much more emphasis on this. But we've got workflows to help you manage all of your quality events, all of these these workflows and activities within the Greenlight platform. They're interconnected. They're linked. We have also included recently some AI and machine learning aspects of this to help make your change process a little bit more thorough, holistic, and robust, as well as give you a picture of all of the connections within your quality ecosystem. So it's pretty cool stuff. So check it out, www.greenlight.guru to learn more. All right, so let's get back to the conversation on breakthrough and step. So, you know, it sounds... I mean, there's there's some nuances. There's process. There's you know engagement or involvement with with FDA. You're going to have a pre-sub and that sort of thing. Sounds pretty good for for products that that you know fit within those designations. But there's probably some drawbacks to this too. It can't all be roses, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think some of the drawbacks of it are I kind of alluded to it earlier. I think it depends on the division that you're engaging with and how familiar they are with the program. And so sometimes the engagements don't go the way that they were intended um, and can actually lead to a little bit more frustration. Um, you obviously can get back on on a, the same page with FDA, um, you know, acknowledging, hey, this is, you know, first part discussion, for example, hey, we're responding in rapid time frame. Um, but you know the the things that I would caution companies on when engaging in in the interactions that are associated with this program um, as a first thing are make sure that you understand your review team's experience with breakthrough devices and step devices to figure out which uh, engagements will work the best with them and and kind of managing their expectations. Um, as well. I think a lot of these teams don't engage in these these types of discussions. And so there is a bit of education on their side about how the process will work. Otherwise, it can be a little bit frustrating. Um, as a bigger picture thing, um, sometimes when you have a breakthrough device or a step device, um, the FDA's bar can get a little bit higher for your clearance or approval um, because you're uh, focusing on specific, you know, language things, like I said, in the indication statement, and you're making, basically making claims, um, that, that need to be proven. Corroborated, right? Um, Yeah. 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 And so, um, that can make the overall review process a little bit more challenging, um, because they're looking at it through a different lens. Um, and if you're saying, Hey, I'm a brand new novel technology, I mean, I don't know that this is associated with specifically being breakthrough device or specifically being step, but um, when any new technology that's out there, FDA um, doesn't really have past precedent to rely on. um, So it eliminates some of the ease of the review for them. And so it does take a little bit more time, even though you have priority review for them to review it because they have to understand certain details that they don't really understand. And again, that's that sort of education process that you have to get with them. Um, And depending on the FDA review team, that can either be an easy process or a more challenging one, depending on the personalities within that team. 
team, right? Um, yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, it's not because you're a step or because you're a breakthrough device, but I think going out there and saying that can, you know, put that different lens on it. And, and sometimes yeah. that can be challenging. That's not always the case. I mean, by any means, but it, it is a possibility. Well, and and I think it's something to be aware of. I mean, if I'm new to uh, this, uh, you know, pursuing breakthrough or or uh, step, I want somebody who's in my corner who's been through that before. You know, even if that person isn't or or entity or firm is not necessarily FDA facing, I want them to provide some coaching and guidance. And and that's one of the things that you and and the team at Proxima does. Um, I've kind of put you on the spot a little bit. Are there some offices or device categories that you think are better suited to this than others? Are, are there certain examples that come to mind? Um, I'll say the ones that I think are good and I won't go to the ones that I think are challenging. Okay, so um, the ones that have been good interactions are typically um, the cardiovascular division, um, certain review teams. So things like heart failure products where it's kind of, you know, obviously very life threatening. Um, and so they do see quite a few of those, uh, breakthrough devices. They just have a bit more experience, um, with, with the program. Um, the in vitro diagnostics division, pre-COVID, um, and even during COVID to a degree has been really easy to work with through the submission process. Um, they, just as a tangent, kind of on the in vitro diagnostic division, so they are no longer accepting pre-subs for the rest of this year. Um, okay. And I mean, as we're recording this, there's still a lot of this year to go. That's uh, that's what I said. Okay. I was like the whole year. Okay. Uh, but they sent out an email notice and said that they weren't receiving any more pre-subs this year at all. Um, they will accept Q-subs for breakthrough device designations. They will do their pre-market review and they are still accepting COVID products. So the, the issue is the EUAs. They just still have an oh, extensive yeah. backlog. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that's actually affecting other divisions too. Mm. Um, but... Uh, so, so they will accept uh, QSEPs or breakthrough devices, and so, and they will engage with breakthrough device products at least right now. Um, and so, so that division has been um, easy to work with, even during for breakthrough devices, um, even during COVID times, because they are still willing to engage and give feedback on those. Um, so, I really like working with them. Um, the neuro division. Um, different culture, but, um, but they have been pretty good to work with as well. Cool. All right. That's good news. There's a lot of products that fit into those buckets. So, yeah. um, uh, I guess I'm also curious. Um, so this I get breakthrough or step and, and I get my product cleared or approved, whichever is applicable and appropriate. Um, you know, something that we've talked a little bit on the green light, uh, guru, Global Medical Device Podcast in the past is this topic of reimbursement. I think it's one of those topics that um, probably doesn't give as much emphasis or, or uh, uh, awareness as it should, um, because that's really important, especially in, in the United States, the way that the payer system works. But are you finding that, that there's any challenges or issues with respect to reimbursement for something that has breakthrough or step? So, um, no challenges specifically um so the the article that you alluded to earlier um 
for breakthrough device designation, there was a rule proposed that any breakthrough device would would get CMS reimbursement. Um, and then there was a, a paper written by, I, I think, a bunch of physicians that were essentially saying, hey, what? <laughs> These haven't been reviewed as as normal for, you know, reimbursement claims. And there's a lot of these. Are we sure we want to do this? And so it was put on hold for a little bit longer review period. And I think, you know, in the next few weeks, they should, unless they extend it again, um, have, you know, a decision on that, um, whether or not that that auto type of reimbursement happens for these breakthrough devices. So, so that was, uh, you know, a big opportunity for a lot of the breakthrough devices. And it did have a lot of companies more interested in getting breakthrough device designation because it, that's huge for them. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Step doesn't have that offering. Um, and so it doesn't have that potential appeal. Um, but you know, I, I guess I'm not a reimbursement expert. I wish I was a little bit more, but on, on the front of reimbursement, I, I will say, um, you know, CMS payers, um, and FDA don't often have the same evidence goals in mind. Um, and so meeting both of those goals is often challenging. And it's a situation that you should try to navigate on the front end instead of the back end, because if you can, at least check some of the boxes for for payers and CMS and all of that um, within trials that you may need to conduct for regulatory approval, you should. But you also don't want to add too much burden to the regulatory clearance or approval side of things if it's not necessary. And then it's going to be that milestone. Um, and they have parallel review programs. I've I've not worked in a parallel review program yet. Um, I, I think I've, it's only happened like three times ever. It's not utilized that much, which yeah. kind of blows my mind. It seems like that would be, and I know there's probably certain criteria that one has to meet and even to qualify, but man, I wish that that program would grow some legs. Cause I think that yeah, would be I've heard positive huge. things about it actually. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, positive things, mostly from reimbursement people. So, <laughs> um, so maybe it is helpful for them. Um, but uh, maybe not so much on the regulatory side of things. Um, but I, you know, they, they're two different entities with two different goals. Um, and, and I think and they don't necessarily talk. I mean, right. they're not heading heads, but they're orthogonal. They never cross and, and, and yeah. rarely do they interact because just two yeah. different branches. And even if you don't do parallel review and in many cases you can request, you know, payers be present for discussions. Um, you know, obviously that depends on their schedule and, and all of that. But, you know, I, I think considering reimbursement early on is always beneficial. Um, you know, how are you going to get paid ultimately once you get out there it is pretty important. And, and sure. the breakthrough device designation had potential for an easy answer, um, but it has. Well, maybe that easy answer will still be become yeah. the reality. So yeah. it's, but you know, well, um, one other thought that I have before we start to wrap things up, uh, I know you, know, you mentioned a little bit uh, or hinted at it a little bit. Um, Breakthrough has been around for a bit. Step actually, I think was first, authored in a draft guidance, don't quote me on this, but something like 2019, I think yeah. most of 2020, we didn't see anything. And then I think the the final guidance was issued maybe January 2021-ish. But I'm not sure. <laughs> Close or thereabouts, but, but for all intents and purposes, um, the step has become quote active just in 2021. So it's still a very new program. Um, and I, I know, um, 
EUAs and all sorts of things, and some some branches and divisions are not accepting Q-subs, and there's been delays and others. Do you see that there's still a, a pretty significant jam and backlog in in the reviews of of pre-subs or 510ks and the like with FDA? Are we seeing that free up at all, or w what's the state of things right now? So, um, for our breakthrough devices and step, well, uh, for breakthrough devices. Step, uh, not so much, but breakthrough devices, they have um, been hitting their timelines. Um, Q-subs have been, and when I say Q-subs, I'm not meaning breakthrough device, I'm meaning pre-subs basically, um, have been hit or miss. And it's really hard to tell um, whether or not you're going to get through. Like I said, IVD, they basically made a clear, hey, don't send us a pre-sub, we're not going to respond to you. Um, but but other divisions, it's it's been challenging to, to know whether or not um, the time the timeline is going to be met, whether they're going to accept it or not. Um, sometimes they do and, and you get through and then you find out on the back end that they're super busy um, and it takes a little bit longer for them to meet the, the normal timeline for the meeting. Um, sometimes they send an email saying, hey, we closed your, your pre-sub and, um, and, and that's it for you. We're not responding to this. You can resubmit it. It might take us 120 days to respond to you. Which is kind of a weird thing um, because, it, yeah. you know, like seriously, you just resubmit and then you get put on the clock. Why can't I just get put on the clock now? Um, but so I asked them and they said, yeah, resubmit and we'll put you on the clock. And so we did that and it has worked. So, and exactly the same thing. It wasn't, you didn't change anything about nope, what you, yeah. Same yeah. submission. It's weird, but, um, uh, but yeah, but it works. And so um, what, what I've seen has been that, um, divisions that are more impacted are the ones that have some propensity for diagnostic tendencies in general, um, because what FDA seems to be doing is pulling folks who have diagnostic background and experience to help with the IVD overload for the EUAs. Oh, wow. um, yeah. The IVD division yes. is very, very backed up. And so um, what I've seen FDA do is call it COVID deployment. So when your reviewer gets pulled into EUA review, um, they get put on COVID deployment. And um, it's just, it's more challenging for them and more challenging for companies. But it yeah. doesn't happen with IVD, I'd say 100% of the time now, for sure. But even before it was like, hey, we have a delay. Um, with other divisions, it's been hit or miss. And, you know, with 510Ks, de novos, uh, PMA type products. Um, PMA is not really so much, but um, 510Ks primarily. Um, it in the IVD division, they were backlogged for wow. months and months um, beyond their Medufa timeline. Um, and I, I think they're going by queue when you submitted it to reinitiate the review of those products. Um, I have had a couple that did finally get put under review. Yeah. Um, well, so I know. And, and, uh, and on that point, I mean, I, I haven't kept up with the, the current statistics on EUAs, but once upon a time, um, if something like there had been like 5,000 uh, EUAs submitted, uh, I'm sure it's way more than that now. Uh, to put it in context, uh, I think on a normal year from an FDA perspective, there's roughly around five or 6,000, give or take, 510Ks that are submitted. Um, granted, an EUA, probably not as detailed and complex as a 510K submission, but 
ramifications are. And the majority of those EUAs have been IVD type products. So that makes perfect sense. I mean, they're getting way more uh, of a load than, than a normal year within that, that division. So it's kind of crazy. And I mean, this is a whole topic in and of itself, but the EUAs um, started off pretty lean and like, oh yeah. I mean, they started off doing those notifications, right? And they were like, you just need to notify us. And then they were like, whoa, this is not going so well. So then everything had to go through the authorization process. Um, and they've started reviewing them almost like a 510K. Well, I, mean, I think it's good. I mean, it's, I mean, it's hard to, to go back in time to those earlier ones, but you know, uh, there was early days, there was some crazy statistic too about how many warning letters were being issued for EUA type products. Yeah. And it's like, oh crap, what is going on? But yeah. anyway, so hopefully here soon, you know, things get back to normal, not just in our everyday world, but also uh, from a regulatory world, because, you know, there's lots of cool products and technologies that, you know, and it's justifiable, makes sense, but they're, they're just kind of sitting there waiting on the sidelines. So hopefully things start to open up. And, you know, I know FDA is, is uh, you know, they're, they're, they do a great service and I think they're uh, underappreciated a lot of times. Um, yeah. But I, I think especially in times that we've been through in the past year or so that, you know, just seeing the responsiveness of the agency has is, is been, frankly, very encouraging yeah. as a medical device professional. And, and I think there's some things that, some practices that that um, started to occur because they had to in a pandemic situation that some of those I'd like to see stick around. You and I have talked about like some of the, the uh, clinical side of things yeah. and um, remote monitoring and things of that nature. So I think yeah. there's a lot of things. And at some point it might be good to say, all right, this, this the, let's pull this in and let's let's grab this and here let's let's sort of revamp the, the normal everyday operating uh, process and borrow some some of the things that we learned but um, any other final thoughts before we call today a wrap um, okay. two final thoughts one is um, on the point that you just made about kind of you know maybe the changing environment and some of those things seem to be positive like remote monitoring and whatnot um, one thing you know FDA has been in a remote virtual kind of environment themselves. So all meetings have been teleconferences. Sometimes they turn on their video, but it's kind of up to their discretion. Um, and, you know, I did reach out to a reviewer recently because I had a client who wanted an in-person meeting and um, they said that they're still on indefinite virtual existence. Yeah. Um, and so it is, I wonder if they're going to move to just doing teleconferences. I mean, I, I'd hope not, uh, but you never know. Um, yeah. And, and not doing those in-person meetings anymore because they can knock them out much faster. Right. Um, and then the second thing was um, on the breakthrough device designation and the step front of things. Um, one important thing to know, and I've had companies ask me this, is um, how can they find out what other companies have been designated? And FDA does not make that publicly available. Um, it is confidential information. And so it's up to the discretion of a company to share that information. So really the way to go about finding this is to look for press releases and, and kind of- And usually companies like, are, they're they screaming, wanna, oh, yeah. we got breakthroughs, so you, you'll find it. Although I will say I've had a couple of companies who like wanted to keep it a secret and fly under yeah, the radar for a while. Um, but you know, a lot of the time you will find lots of them. Although I haven't found very many for step designation. And I think that's because it's so new. It's just, I think it's new, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you want to do step designation, you might be a trailblazer out there. Um, <laughs> rank really high on SEO for now. Um, yeah, that's so. a good point. All right. 
Terrific. Well, uh, Isabella, as always, thank you. I appreciate I always learn a nugget or two about things regulatory. I don't I, I've been out of practice and haven't uh, actually worked on breakthrough uh, d- devices or, or step, at least you know, from a hands-on approach. Yeah. I know Greenlight has a few customers that, that have products in those, at least the breakthrough side of things. And I know Proxima is doing great work on that. So thank you so much as always. Again, yeah. Isabella Schmidt with Proxima Zero. Check their website out, ProximaCRO.com. And once again, this is uh, John Spear, founder, and host, uh, our founder at Greenlight, host of Global Medical Device Podcast, something like that. Uh, if you're watching, same thing, yeah. If you're wa- if you're watching this uh, episode, uh, of course, we always appreciate the thumbs up when you like those things, uh, and you know, be sure to subscribe, click that giant red button, and you know, there's also YouTube has this little bell that when you click it can get notified of when new episodes are live. So those are all great things uh, to, to be a part of and aware of. And that way you just, you know, when, you know, we're, we're having a new episode. So check that out. Uh, I guess, you know, for now, thank you for listening and watching and, and always appreciate uh, the opportunity to catch up with uh, some peers in the industry. Uh, so thank you to Isabella. And until next time, you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.